From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I'm thrilled to welcome Bishop John Shelby Spong back to the program. His 26 books have sold over a million copies. He tackles fundamentalism and has spent his career bringing theology and biblical studies into the modern time. He writes that fundamentalist Christians are heretics. His latest book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. Welcome again, Bishop Spong, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. It's good to be with you. The subtitle of your book is Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. Why is it a Gentile heresy? Jesus was a Jew. A lot of people haven't quite embraced that even yet. Mm -hmm. All of his disciples were Jews. The earliest members of the Christian community, the followers of Jesus, were all Jews. The Christian church lived in the synagogue for the first Oh, 40 years of its life before it broke away and became a, a separate movement. And in the synagogue, the scriptures, the gospels were formed, and they were formed with Jewish knowledge, Jewish scriptures, Jewish background, Jewish storytelling, Jewish myth-making. And if you read those gospels with Jewish eyes, you can't possibly be literal about them. And everything from the virgin birth to the empty tomb is not literal. And, and uh, what I've tried to do is to put the original Jewish message of Jesus into a language that people can understand. By 150 of the Common Era, and that's an arbitrary date, but by about that date, there were very few Jews left in the Christian community. And so the only people left to read the Gospels were Gentiles. They lacked all of this Jewish background. They were the only people who wrote commentaries on the Gospels for about 2,000 years. Only in the last part of the 20th century have we begun to bring the Christian message and Judaism back into closer proximity. And my book, I hope, is going to help people see that biblical literalism is simply uh, an impossibility if you read the Gospels in the order in which they were written and in the, in the way in which they were written. And it opens the stories up to such tremendous new meaning that uh, I just found it exhilarating. Your book is a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, that the author of Matthew structured the Jesus story based on liturgical events within the Jewish year. Can you give us an overview of how Matthew was put together and how it relates to the Jewish year and synagogue practice? Well, I'll try. It's, uh, it's not just Matthew, however. I think Mark started that by making the, the story that he told uh, based upon the Jewish liturgical year. Mm -hmm. Matthew copied and expanded Mark, and Luke copied and expanded Mark, but both of them in entirely different directions. Uh, Matthew in a more Jewish traditional direction, Luke in a more Gentile proselyte. The church was beginning to move out of the Jewish orbit in Luke's gospel, and so he, he uh, reflects that in his writing. But uh, the, the first clue is that the resurrection, or not the resurrection, the crucifixion, is in all four of the Gospels placed against the story of the Passover. Now the question is, is that a historical connection? That is, was Jesus crucified at the time of the Passover? The Gospels make it fairly clear that that's their intention because they have him go down to Jerusalem when he winds up getting crucified for the sole purpose of celebrating the Passover. But there are a lot of places in the Gospel text that indicate that the crucifixion of Jesus probably took place in the fall of the year and that it got moved liturgically into the late spring or early spring of the year into the season of the Passover. Some of those, uh, some of those possibilities are such things as the 
Gospels tell the story of the Palm Sunday procession that took place a week before the crucifixion. And at the Palm Sunday procession, which would mean if, if Passover and crucifixion were literally tied together, that would mean late March, a week before, uh, and they wave leafy branches. Well, there are no leafy branches in Palestine. People say, oh, but they were palm branches and they're evergreens. No, they didn't refer to palm leaves as branches. If you know what a palm looks like, it's just not something, you wouldn't call it ever a leafy branch. And palms don't enter the Palm Sunday story until John writes, and that's near the end of the century. The second reason that looks like it might have been a, a move date is there's this really weird story in Mark's gospel about Jesus on the first day after the Palm Sunday procession walking back into Jerusalem. The event that day is going to be the cleansing of the temple. And on the way, the text says he gets hungry. And he sees a fig tree in the distance, and he goes to the fig tree looking for some figs. Well, there are no figs on the fig tree because there's not a fig tree in the northern hemisphere that bears fruit in late March. And despite this rather uh, realistic assessment of the fig tree's capacity, the story says that Jesus lays a curse on the fig tree and it shrivels up and dies. Well, that story is very un-Jesus-like. I mean, you, you can condemn a fig tree for a lot of things, but not bearing figs in March hardly qualifies as blameworthy. Uh, I tell people that uh, I can't be blamed for not getting pregnant. There's no way I can get <laughs> pregnant. That just is a violation of the law of nature. Well, the violation of the law of nature for a fig tree, we produce figs in, in late March. But nonetheless, the story is told about a curse being laid on the fig tree. And, uh, and it's interesting to watch how Mark tells that story first, and he stretches it out over the morning experience laying the curse on the fig tree and the evening experience as they come back home and seeing the fig tree dead. Matthew is sort of embarrassed apparently by that story, so he collapses that two-pronged event into a single event, so Jesus curses the fig tree and it shrivels immediately and he gets rid of it. Luke drops it entirely and turns it into a parable, the parable of the fig tree. There's no story in Luke about Jesus laying a curse on a fig tree. So these things sort of indicate that maybe the crucifixion has been moved from the fall into the sp late early spring and that it was moved for liturgical reasons. There's a final one, and that is that the Jews celebrated a harvest festival of eight days in the fall month of Tishri, which would be mid to late October. And in that fall month, in that celebration of, of the harvest festival, it was called booths or tabernacles or Sukkot, they would celebrate by having a march around Jerusalem and through the temple and at that time, they would wave something they called a lulav in their right hand. A lulav was a, a medley of, of branches made of middle, myrtle, willow, and palm. They would bind together, and they would wave these branches in the air as they walked in the procession. And they would shout or say together the words of the 118th Psalm, which say, uh, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a... Uh, that's right out of Palm Sunday. Once again, it looks like the Palm Sunday liturgy was lifted out of the fall celebration of Sukkot, another indication that maybe that was its original setting. So what you've discovered is that events that have been portrayed in the Gospels as having happened in the spring, such as Jesus cursing a fig tree for not bearing fruit and the waving of palm branches, are out of season and are more fitting for the fall. And the fall celebration of Sukkot is 
likely the celebration that the gospel writers based their Palm Sunday stories upon. So the authors intentionally moved events that happened in the fall, the important event being the crucifixion of Jesus, to the spring. Why did they do that? Well, because Paul began to talk when he wrote to the Corinthians, and that would be about 54 or 55, he began to talk about Jesus being the new Passover lamb. And they began to talk about the cross as the, as the place where the new Passover lamb was slaughtered. Uh, in the Passover story from the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the blood of the lamb was placed on the doorpost of Jewish homes so the angel of death could pass over Jewish homes and only kill the firstborn in every Egyptian household. It's still a rather gory story, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it, it's a, it became the, the liturgical heart of Judaism because it celebrated the time of their exodus. Christians began to think about the crucifixion of Jesus as another exodus, not out of slavery, but out of sin and not out of, and out of death. And, and they began to talk about the cross being a new doorpost onto the world. The cross sort of stood suspended, pointed to heaven and rooted in the earth. And the blood of the new paschal lamb shed on the doorpost of, of that cross was said to have been sufficient to repel the power of death. So the story of Jesus, the crucifixion, and his resurrection gets caught up with Passover. And it seems to me that in that period of time between the time of the crucifixion and the time the Gospels are written, they simply linked it up with the Passover. And so the Christians were celebrating Passover in their particularly Christian way, while the Jews were observing it in their particularly Jewish way. Now that's the start. Progressive Spirit. Spirituality. Social Justice. ProgressiveSpirit.net. It's more important for the gospel writers to have the events surrounding Jesus have meaning in a liturgical or theological sense than to describe what happened as if it were a journalistic report. So the crucifixion of Jesus was read in the tradition of Passover. What are some other ways that the gospel writers shaped the stories of Jesus to fit the Jewish liturgical calendar? If you read Mark's gospel, he climaxes his story with the crucifixion then you go back and look how he opens his story. He opens his story with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is clearly cast in the role of Elijah. He's dressed in Elijah's clothes, camel's hair, and a leather thong around his waist. Uh, he's placed in Elijah's location, the desert. And he's fed with the desert food of locusts and wild honey. John, Mark has made a, an identification between John the Baptist and Elijah. Now, why was that important? In the Jewish messianic view, Elijah had to come to precede the Messiah. And so John the Baptist is interpreted in terms of the second coming of Elijah. And the time that the Jews celebrated that was what they call Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And it's somewhere around the uh, first part of October in our calendar. It'd be the first day of the month of Tishri in the Jewish calendar. So that Mark looks like he starts the story of Jesus with a Rosh Hashanah story about Jesus, uh, with John the Baptist as the new Elijah and preparing the way for the Lord to come and urging the people to be repentant, to get the Messianic age on board. And he ends it with the crucifixion. Now, if you got those two parts of the Jewish liturgical calendar fixed together, Rosh Hashanah to Passover, then if you were Jewish, you would know there's three major days that come between those two, the Yom Kippur, the harvest festival called Booths or Tabernacles, or Sukkot, 
and the Feast of Dedication, which we today call Hanukkah. You then look at Mark's Gospel and you find specific Jesus stories that are very much adapted to those three days, and they come in exactly the right place between Rosh Hashanah and Passover. Bishop John Shelby Spong is my guest. He's talking about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. He demonstrates that the stories of Jesus were never meant to be taken literally, but were shaped by the gospel writers to fit a Jewish liturgical calendar. John the Baptist is the new Elijah from Rosh Hashanah, the crucifixion of Jesus for Passover. Then in between Passover and Rosh Hashanah are Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Hanukkah. How did stories in the Gospels fit those celebrations? The Yom Kippur story, or stories, are healing and cleansing stories. You need to remember that in that period of history, if you were sick, it was because you had been attacked by the devil or because God was punishing you for your sins. He didn't know anything about infections or germs or viruses. And so you have these stories, including one rather unique story, where a Jewish man named Levi is has a job as the re- collector of taxes for the Gentile oppressing Roman government. That was about as unclean as you could possibly get in the Jewish world. And so right in that exact spot, there's a story of Jesus coming into the Roman tax collecting agency and taking Levi and bringing him out and restoring him and making him an apostle. That's exactly a Yom Kippur message. Then if you get to chapter 4 of Mark, you find that the whole chapter is harvest festival pageants, uh, parables. There's a parable of the sower, there's a parable of the wheat and the tares, there's the parable of the mustard seed. It's a whole series of harvest parables, which would be very appropriate Jesus material for the eight-day celebration of Sukkot, the harvest festival. And then you come to dedication in the dead of winter, and the story is the, the account of light being restored to Jesus, there is no temple. The temple has been destroyed before Mark's gospel wrote was written. And so the light of God doesn't come on the temple at the Feast of Dedication. It comes on Jesus, and that's the story of the Transfiguration. This is an exactly appropriate story in exactly the appropriate place, so that it looks to me like Mark organizes the Jesus material in the first gospel to be written, so that the followers of Jesus would have Jesus stories to be used in the synagogue between Rosh Hashanah and Passover. And what Matthew does is he comes along and he expands Mark. He's got to cover the other five and a half months of the year. And the one major festival that is left out in Mark, because he didn't, it's not that long, is what the Jews call Shavuot or Pentecost, which came 50 days after Easter, I mean after Passover. And it recalled the, the time in Jewish history when the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And at exactly the right place in Matthew's Gospel, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus as the new Moses going up on a new mountain to give a new interpretation of the Torah. Not a new Torah, but a new interpretation. And we call that the Sermon on the Mount. It's only in Matthew, and it comes at exactly the right place in Matthew's Gospel. So the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel fits into the Jewish celebration Shavuot. Shavuot is a vigil to celebrate the Ten Commandments given to Moses. You write in your book that Shavuot is celebrated in a 24-hour vigil, and even that corresponds with the Sermon on the Mount. How does that fit? The Sermon on the Mount is divided into eight Beatitudes with eight commentaries on each of the eight Beatitudes, interestingly in reverse order, so that it provides a unit for each of the three-hour units of the 24-hour liturgy. 
it's exactly modeled on the celebration of Shavuot in the Jewish world. Uh, but one final thing is that the psalm written for uh, Shavuot, a 24-hour liturgical event, was Psalm 119. That's why it's so long. It had to be long enough to have part of that psalm available for each of the eight three-hour segments of a 24-hour day. That psalm begins with an introductory stanza of eight verses. The first two of those eight verses have the word blessed as the first word. In Greek, that's makarios. It also means happy. And Matthew clearly models the Sermon on the Mount after Psalm 119. It makes perfect sense if you understand Jewish liturgy. And that's why I became convinced that the organizing principle of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the one-year liturgical celebration of the Jewish uh, worship cycle. And when you, when you put it again in that context, the Gospels open up in dramatically different and powerful ways. Progressive Spirit. Spirituality. Social justice. My guest is Bishop John Shelby Spong. His 25th book is Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. He just gave a, a summary of, of the viewpoint there. So uh, the stories from Jesus about uh, Jesus, from his birth to Sermon on the Mount to the various miracles, all the way to the trial, crucifixion, and resurrection are not reports of events. But uh, what do we call this kind of literature? Midrash? Is it fiction, in fact? Is it really pretty much all mythology? I wouldn't call it fiction. I certainly wouldn't call it mythology. Uh, the Jews might use the word midrash. Midrash was a Jewish storytelling technique, and you see evidence of it a lot of places in the Bible, where the same story is told about a different Jewish hero. For example, uh, Moses split the waters of the Red Sea. We're all familiar with that. We're not familiar with it because we've read the Bible. We're familiar with it because we've seen Cecil B. DeMille's movie uh -huh. starring Charlton Heston called The Ten Commandments. But Moses is supposed to split the waters of the, of the Red Sea. If you read the Bible carefully, you'll discover that Joshua splits the waters that are flooded of the Jordan River. You keep reading the Bible, you discover that, that Elijah splits the Jordan River and walks across on dry land. If you keep reading, you discover that Elisha splits the waters of the Jordan River. I think when, the, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus' baptism, he has this in mind. He brings Jesus up to the Jordan River. Jesus doesn't split the Jordan River. Jesus splits the heavenly waters. He splits the firmament. If you were Jewish, you would know that the firmament was created on the second day of the seven-day creation story, and its purpose was to, to separate the waters above from the waters below. So Jesus is is splitting the heavenly waters. Now all Moses can do is split the Red Sea. The interpreters of Jesus were trying to say, we have found in Jesus a God presence that is deeper and more profound even than the God presence in the greatest heroes of our Jewish past, even Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. So that's, that was the Midrash technique, and you find it over and over again, uh, expanding the food supply. Jesus does that in the feeding of the 5,000, which is told six times in the New Testament. If you go back and you read the stories of Elijah and Elisha, they also expand the food supply. If you go back and read Moses, and it's Moses that God rains heavenly bread so the Israelites don't starve. That's the ultimate example of expanding the food supply. I wouldn't say that these stories are fiction. I would say that they're an interpretive narrative trying to explain the power that people found in Jesus of Nazareth, and they are using 
vocabulary, stories, background, and tradition that would be familiar only to the Jewish people. When there were no more Jews who did not understand this background, then the Gentile population tended to literalize all of these stories. And so you and I are, are left having to believe, if we want to be literal Christians, in everything from the seven-day creation, which Darwin sort of uh, destroyed, all the way up to the feeding of the 5,000, which makes very little sense in a pre- a post-Newtonian world, all the way up to the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven, which makes absolutely no sense in a post-Galilean world. Uh, they don't; Those concepts don't literalize. But if you understand that they're Jewish stories trying to uh, communicate the truth that they have found in the man named Jesus of Nazareth, then you wouldn't call it fiction. You wouldn't call it myth-making. I call it uh, trying to take an experience that is powerful, real, and true, and trying to communicate it in symbolic language that familiar people of the Jewish faith tradition would fully understand. I hear you saying in, in many ways that literalism has co-opted Christianity for a long time, made it and the Bible silly at best, harmful at worst. But these texts, yet when liberated from literalism and fundamentalism and understood in their, in their time being in our time, they still have value uh, for humanity, uh, for Christianity. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, earlier title in a book of mine was Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. I really think we've lived in a Gentile captivity of these Jewish scriptures for centuries. And part of the reaction that we're having in the modern world uh, of either becoming a biblical fundamentalist because there's no other alternative or giving up the whole Christian endeavor because biblical literalism makes absolutely no sense to modern men and women those are the alternatives that I see as tearing the Christian church apart. And I want to offer people a third alternative where they can use their minds, live in the 21st century, and still be drawn to the power of the Jesus experience, which I believe is real, and I believe is profound, and I believe is life-changing. You're listening to Progressive Spirit with John Chuck. Bishop John Shelby Spong, my guest, he's the author of his 25th book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. We have a couple of minutes left, but I, I want to go with this one place with you. Uh, you and I both wrote letters in support of uh, Greta Vosper, the minister in the United Church of Canada who self-identifies as an atheist. Uh, she's in a bit of uh, hot water with her church. Uh, none of the three of us, Greta, you or I, ha and many others, think a supernatural interventionist God exists. Uh, you've been saying that long before either Greta or I have. So I have two questions. Would you call yourself, since this rise of atheism, an atheist? Uh, and does the three-letter word God have a future for humanity and Christianity? Well, I would not call myself an atheist. I call myself a God-intoxicated human being. Hmm. But I think what we, what we don't understand is that what we are rejecting today is not God, but a theistic definition of God. Mm-hmm. What atheism really means is you reject a theistic definition. However, in our vocabulary, it means you no longer believe in God. I think it's a mistake to, to uh, let the word atheism mean that. So if I had to call myself something, I would call myself a non-theistic believing Christian. Now, mm. people hear that, and they don't know quite what to make of it, and you almost have to read an entire book before it begins to make <laughs> sense. Yeah. To me, that's a very different perspective. I would not use the word atheist. Uh, it would not be true because I am a, I'm a deeply committed Christian. 
But I look at my Christianity through the eyes of scholarship and particularly through the eyes of the 21st century, and I try to open it to other people so that they can get a different sort of view of Christianity from the one I grew up with. I grew up in an evangelical Episcopal church in Charlotte, North Carolina, that taught me that segregation was the will of God, that men were created superior to women, that it was okay to hate Jews and other religions, and that all homosexuals are either mentally sick or morally depraved, and they quoted the Bible to prove each of these deeply debilitating prejudices. And I've spent most of my life trying to live out from under the kind of prejudiced, biblically supported understanding of life that my church gave me for the first dozen years of my life. And, you know, usually when you throw overboard the stuff you learned as a child in Sunday school, you just give up the whole Christian enterprise. For some reason, I cannot do that. The Christian enterprise means far too much for me. But I want to reinterpret it. I want to open it. I want to get to the experience behind the explanation and offer people a different alternative and a different way in to the Christian faith. And you've done that for many people, uh, myself included. Now, you wrote in your preface that this is probably your last book. I and many others are hoping we can get at least one more out of you. If another were to come... I appreciate that. I've I've now written seven last books. (laughs) And so I don't know anybody that much believes it. I did put the word probably into the text because even I'm not convinced... Uh, But I am 84 years old, and it takes three or four or five years to write a book to do the competent study that you have to do to to bring it to pass. And whether I'm competent either physically or mentally to write another book between ages 85 and 90, I just simply doubt. I'm working now on a series in my column called Charting a New Reformation, in which I deal with such things as the meaning of atheism versus theism versus non-theism, in which I look at Jesus through a different sort of lens, not the lens of incarnation, which is the lens of the theistic God taking on human flesh. I don't think that makes much sense in the theological perspective of our day. And if this works out to be a book that I feel competent to turn, or a series of columns that I feel competent to turn into a book, I don't put that outside the realm of the possibility. But... uh, but I don't want to promise it because it takes enormous amounts of energy. I still run four miles a day, so I still got a lot of energy, and uh, not many people my age are able to do that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it out of bounds. But I certainly don't want to lead anybody to expect it as a as a natural possibility. It has been a delight uh, to speak with you, as it always has, uh, Bishop Spong. Thank you. Appreciate a chance to talk with you and your listeners. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For links to podcasts, go to ProgressiveSpirit.net. Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO Portland. Be well.